very interesting parallel between Moses and Jesus. In fact, as we read the Bible, we discover that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses prefigured. In other words, we might say that Jesus was a new Moses because Jesus did the same things on a larger scale than Moses. Allow me just to mention some of the parallels so that we can uh, see the relationship that existed between the Old Testament Moses and Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of what Moses represented. Both Moses and Jesus delivered slaves from bondage. Moses delivered literal Israel from slavery to the literal Egyptians. Jesus delivered us from slavery to Satan and to sin. Both Moses and Jesus uh, went through a very severe trial when they were born. Remember all of the babies were killed with the hopes of killing the deliverer? Well, the same thing happened with Jesus as happened with Moses. And it was a pagan king that pronounced the death sentence in both cases. Both Moses and Jesus were protected in Egypt, interestingly enough. In fact, God called Israel out of Egypt along with Moses. And the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 11, says, Out of Egypt I called my son. God called Jesus out of Egypt for Jesus to perform his mission. Both Moses and Jesus dealt with groups of 12. Moses with the 12 tribes and Jesus with the 12 apostles. Both Moses and Jesus called 70 to extend their work. Both Moses and Jesus were severely criticized by the people that they were sent to. Moses, we could say, brought manna from heaven, but Jesus said, I am the living manna that came from heaven. Moses, when he struck the rock, brought water from the rock. Jesus said, I am the rock, and I am the water that comes forth from the rock. Moses instituted, we might say, the Passover in Israel. Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is our Passover. Interestingly enough, both Moses and Jesus led a people out from bondage to the promised land. Moses to the physical land of Canaan, Jesus to the heavenly Canaan. Interestingly enough, Jesus spent 40 days on the mount being tempted, and Moses also spent 40 days on a mountain. And after spending 40 days on the mountain, Moses came down and delivered the law unto Israel. Jesus, after spending 40 days in the wilderness, came out and he sat also on a mount to deliver the law of his new kingdom. Let's read that as it's found in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. And incidentally, both Moses and Jesus were baptized before they gave the law from the mountain. You say, how was Moses baptized? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible tells us that Israel and Moses were baptized in the sea. And of course, Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. And so there are, there are a whole series of parallels between Moses and Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses indicated. Now, the particular point that I want us to take a look at as we begin our study this evening is that both Moses and Jesus delivered a law to God's people from a mountain. 
I don't think I have to tell you that Moses in the Old Testament went up to Mount Sinai and God gave him the law on Mount Sinai and then Moses came down and he delivered the law unto the people. Well, the fact is that Jesus, after his baptism, after spending 40 days in the mountain being tempted, he also came down and delivered a law to his people. Notice Matthew chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, To whom is Jesus speaking here? To the twelve disciples. To whom did Moses speak? To the twelve tribes of Israel. That's right. And they're both delivering a law. Now, let me share with you the way some Christians look at the relationship between Moses and Jesus. They say that Moses was an individual who gave a law which was poor, pure justice and punishment to Israel. Whereas Jesus, from the Mount of the Beatitudes, he gave a law of love and grace and mercy. And so they place a contradiction or they place a... Uh, division, we might say, between Moses and between Jesus. Moses gave a law that was justice, a law that was punishment, if you violated it, but now Jesus, when he sits on the Mount of the Beatitudes to speak to his people, he gives a law of mercy, of love, and of grace. Is this true? Is this the way that the Lord Jesus looked at law? Is it true that Jesus, as the new Moses, now presents a law that is pure love, whereas Moses presented a law which is pure justice and pure punishment. Many individuals believe that that is the relationship between Moses and Jesus and the two laws that they gave. Now let's take a look at this in our study tonight. In order to understand what we're going to study from the Gospels, we need some Old Testament background. And I'm not going to read all of these passages, I'm just going to make reference to them. And uh, hopefully in our minds we'll be able to understand the context in which uh, Moses gave the law, and then we're going to study the context in which Jesus gave the law. Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 18 describes how Israel was in bondage and they were delivered from bondage by God. They were delivered by grace, if you read the story. They didn't do anything to deliver themselves, to free themselves. God simply heard their cries and God delivered them from bondage because he loved them. So Exodus chapter 1 through 18 speaks about the bondage of Israel and God's miraculous intervention to deliver them from bondage to the Egyptians. And then God takes them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God is now going to give his law to Israel. In fact, let's notice Exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice that in the Old Testament we have law, but we also have grace. You see, God delivered Israel from, from Egypt by His grace because they cried out. They didn't earn it. They weren't behaving themselves. God simply heard their cries and He delivered them. Now I want you to notice how the Ten Commandments begin. They don't begin by saying, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Notice how they begin in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 
That is the prologue to the Ten Commandments. God is saying, I delivered you from bondage to the Egyptians. And then in the next verse, in verse 2, we have the beginning of the Ten Commandments. What is God saying to Israel? God is saying, I delivered you from service to Pharaoh. Now, because you love me, I want you to do what? I want you to keep my commandments. I want you to respond to me in love. Now, I want you to notice what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13 about these Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13. Very interesting what the commandments are called. It says there in verse 13, So he declared to you his what? His covenant. Don't forget that's a key word. Which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. What is the covenant? The covenant is the Ten Commandments. So it says, So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So the covenant is what? The Ten Commandments. God delivered Israel free because they cried out to him. Now God says, I want you to respond to me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now how did Israel react when God wanted to make this covenant with them? When God said, okay, I want to make this covenant with you. I want you to keep my law because I've delivered you, because you love me. How did Israel respond to this? Let's go to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8. When Moses goes up to the mount, he comes down, he tells Israel that God wants to make a covenant with them. And I want you to notice how the people respond. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will what? We will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So did the people enter into a covenant relationship with God? Yes, they did. So I want you to have the picture clear in your mind. The people do not deliver themselves. They cry out to God. Because they cry out to God, God in His mercy, by His grace, delivers them from bondage to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Then He takes them to Mount Sinai. He says, now I've delivered you from your previous master. Now I want to be your master. And so He says, I delivered you from bondage. I delivered you from Egypt. Now if you love me, you will keep what? My commandments. And how did the people respond to this covenant that God wanted to make with them? They said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. How long did their decision last? <laughs> well, it lasted at least till Exodus 32, when they made the golden calf. And they danced around the golden calf, and they worshipped the golden calf. But isn't it true that Israel constantly was breaking the Ten Commandments? Isn't it true that they constantly disobeyed the will of God? Absolutely. You can look at the history of Israel. Most of the history of Israel is composed of negative experiences where Israel is violating the law of God. Now, here is another very important point about this covenant. You see, the old covenant had two aspects. The first aspect was the law. God said, this is my law. I've delivered you. I want you to keep it because you love me. But Israel did not keep it. In fact, there's no one in the world that has perfectly kept that covenant except for Jesus. And so now Israel sins, but the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Is death. Now there's a second aspect to this covenant. 
And that aspect of the covenant is that if the people sinned, there was provision of sacrificing animals to satisfy the penalty that needed to be paid for their sin. And here's where it becomes very interesting because in Exodus 25 to 40 you have the Hebrew sanctuary. And what happened in the Hebrew sanctuary? Animals were sacrificed. And so you notice God, he delivers them from bondage, he gives them his law, they say we'll obey it, but they don't obey it, so God provides a way in which their sins can be satisfied and taken care of by the sacrificial service of the sanctuary. So in Exodus we have law, the Ten Commandments, but when Israel does not obey the law, if they're penitent and sad for their sins, then God says, I'll give you the sacrifices, the shedding of the blood of the animals, and that will satisfy the demands of the law, and I'll be able to forgive your sins. Law and grace in the Old Testament. Now, I'd like to focus in particularly on one of those sacrifices. You know, we could be here till next year at this time just studying the sacrifices that we have in the Hebrew sanctuary. But I'd like to dwell particularly on one. And that was the sacrifice of the lamb morning and evening. Go with me to Exodus chapter 29 and verse 39. Exodus chapter 29 and verse 38 and 39. Notice this one sacrifice, which by the way was for all of Israel. It was offered in the morning and it was offered in the evening. The animal on the altar burned day and night. Continually. It never went out. Meaning that the sacrifice of Christ was acceptable to everyone. Now notice verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two what? Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. That is, in the evening. Now let me ask you, why were these animals offered? Why? Why was the blood of these animals shed? Because of what? Sin. And what is sin? It's transgressing God's holy law. And so when the people disobeyed God's law, even though they said, we'll keep it, the result was sin. And when they sinned, they were subject to what? To the death sentence. But God provided the animals the sacrifice of the animals, the shedding of the blood of the animals to satisfy the demands of the justice of the law. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So that they could be forgiven. But now here's my question. Did those sacrifices really take away sin? Let's suppose that you have sheep in your backyard. And you say, oh no, I just told a lie. I'm going to go get one of my lambs in my backyard. I'm going to bring it and I'm going to slit its throat and shed its blood and my sin is taken care of. Is that the way it works? No. Could the blood of animals really remove sin? No. The creator of all had to take the place of all. Only he who created everyone could pay the price for everyone. In other words, an animal could not satisfy the justice of the law. There had to be someone greater who could satisfy the demands of the law. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 regarding the sacrifices of the animals. It says there, For it is not possible 
that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So the question is, why did God have these animals sacrificed if they really could not take away sin? Because God wanted Israel, through those animal sacrifices, to see that they represented what? That they represented the Messiah who would come to shed his blood. In other words, the people in the Old Testament were saved by faith in the blood of a coming Redeemer. Whereas we are saved by our faith in the blood of the Redeemer who has come. In other words, it was a method whereby God could show to their minds that the wages of sin is death, so that they could manifest sorrow for their sins and manifest their faith in the Messiah who was going to come. The animal blood did not save them. It was the Messiah who was going to save them. Faith in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Now go with me. Is this clear, the context of the Old Testament now, in your mind? Now let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the book of Matthew, and ver chapter 26, and we'll read verses 27 and 28. Matthew chapter 26, and verses 27 and 28. Here the Lord Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, which takes the place of the Passover. Now notice what it says there in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 27 and 28. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And now notice. For this is my blood of the... What? Of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That is, for the forgiveness of sins. So in the Old Testament, did we have a covenant? Yes or no? Yes. What were the two parts of the covenant? Number one, the law. Number two, if a person broke the law, what? The animal sacrifices to satisfy the demands of the law. Now here Jesus is speaking about a new covenant. He's talking about shedding his blood for the remission of sins. Now, my question is, how did John the Baptist introduce Jesus when he was about to baptize him? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So who fulfilled the ceremony of the Lamb offered morning and evening in the Old Testament? Jesus did. But let me ask you, was the blood of Jesus more powerful than the blood of those animals? Yes. I want you to notice that in the Old Covenant there is blood, and in the New Covenant there is blood. But the New Covenant has bitter blood, because it's the blood of Jesus. It's blood that actually forgives sin. And incidentally, let me tell you this, that unless Jesus had come to die, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament would have been in vain. Because those sacrifices had the intention of people manifesting faith in the coming Messiah. If Messiah didn't come, all of those people would have perished in their sins, no matter how sorry they were for their sins. And so you have an old covenant and you have a new covenant. You have a law in the old covenant, do you have a law in the new covenant? Let me ask you this, why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Why did he have to shed his blood? Because of what? Sin. And what is sin? Let me ask you, was sin under the new covenant any different than sin under the old covenant? Are you with me tonight or not? 
Was sin the same in the Old and New Covenant? Is it transgression of the law under both covenants? Yes. Was there a satisfaction for sin under the Old Covenant? Yes. Blood of animals. Did that really satisfy the demands of the law? No. Was there blood under the New Covenant? Yes. Did it satisfy the demands of the law fully and completely for everyone in the whole vast world? Yes. So there's blood in the Old, there's blood in the New. There's law in the Old and there's law in the New. Now you're saying, in what way is the New Covenant different? Well, the first way in which the New Covenant is different is because the New Covenant has better blood. Because it's blood which forgives sin. Blood which takes away the sin of the world. Blood which, when it is claimed, really and truly remits sin. Really and truly forgives. But now let me share with you an awesome secret about the New Covenant that many people have forgotten or ignored. You see, there's two aspects of the Old and New Covenant. At Mount Sinai, when the people said, all that the Lord has said, we will do, they soon, soon broke that commandment and they needed the ceremonial system, didn't they? Was there at least one individual in Israel that we know of who was patient for a period of 40 years and did not follow Israel in its apostasy? Who was that? It was Moses. In fact, it says in Exodus chapter 34 that when he came down from communion with God on the mountain, his face was shining with the glory of God because God had done something with Moses that we're going to take a look at now. You see, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are different because the New Covenant has better blood than the Old Covenant. The New Covenant really forgives. The Old Covenant in itself could not. But there's more to the New Covenant. Go with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and let's start reading at verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Let me ask you, was the Old Covenant deficient? Was it deficient? Yes. You say, how could you call something that God gave deficient? It was deficient in the sense that the, that the blood could not forgive sin. Right? Now, how about the New Covenant? Notice chapter 31 of Jeremiah, and let's start reading at verse 31. Very powerful passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a what? Oh, a new covenant. Did we notice that in the words of Jesus? Did Jesus speak about a new covenant? Is this the same covenant that Jesus spoke about? Yeah, there's an old covenant and a new one. Now notice, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I'm not going to make a covenant like the one I made back there. So the, uh, the covenant was bad then. Covenant was bad? Would a good God, God give a bad covenant? I don't think so. Where was the problem? It continues saying. Once again, verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. Where was the problem? They broke it. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now why did they break it? You know why? They broke it because for them the law was written on tables of stone instead of the law being written on the tablets of their hearts. And this is the second great secret about the new covenant. 
Do you know that Moses had a new covenant experience at Mount Sinai? Because Moses had the law of God written on his heart. You can tell by the life of Moses. The Bible says that he's the meekest man that ever lived upon the earth. He was patient with these people 40 years. He lost his temper finally at the very end. But for 40 years he put up with them. And he was docile, he was patient, and he was meek. He didn't join Israel in apostasy. The fact is that Moses had a new covenant experience in the Old Testament. But God says, most of Israel didn't. They broke my covenant. He says, so I'm not going to make that kind of covenant with them anymore because they just looked at the covenant as written on tablets of stone. So what kind of covenant does God say he's going to make? Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What is the second great blessing of the new covenant? The law is not written on tables of stone, it is written on the tablets of where? Of the heart. Now here's my question. Does the law change under the new covenant? Is it the law that changes? No. What changes? The place where the law is written. Does the law change in the new covenant with respect to sin? Is sin still transgression of the law under the new covenant? Do you still need better blood? Under the new covenant, is the law still the same law? Yes, but the law is written in a better place. So under the new covenant, you have two great blessings. You have better blood, and the law is written in a better place. But the law doesn't change. The law stays the same, but instead of being written on tablets of stone, it's written in the heart. Now you might be saying, well, pastor, but this is, this is Old Testament stuff, Jeremiah. So go with me to the book of Hebrews. And let's notice what the book of Hebrews, do you know that Hebrews quotes this passage that we just read from Jeremiah 31? Hebrews chapter 8, and here we're going to find the two blessings of the new covenant. Better blood and the law written in a better place, like Moses had it written in his heart. By the way, if you want to read an interesting passage about how Moses had a new covenant experience in the Old Testament, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where it speaks about Moses having the law written upon the tablets of his heart. But we won't be able to get into that tonight because we don't have enough time. But notice Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, with whom? With the law? No. With them, with the people, he says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is quoting from where? Jeremiah 31. Verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Where was the problem? With the covenant or with the people? With the people. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
And now notice, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. What are the two blessings of the new covenant? The forgiveness of what? Sin by better blood and the law of God written where? In a better place, in the heart, instead of being written on tablets of stone. Incidentally, you remember that when the Lord Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, his last words were what? It is finished. And then what happened? According to Matthew chapter 27. When Jesus said, it is finished, the curtain was ripped from bottom to top. Ah, thank you. There are some of you awake out there. The curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Now let me ask you, is that a normal way of ripping a curtain? If you're going to rip a curtain, you climb up on a chair, you grab it on top, and you rip it down. Of course not. The fact is that this curtain in the sanctuary between the holy and the most holy place was being ripped from top to bottom because Jesus was saying, the old covenant has come to an end. Now that is finished because now I have offered better blood. And that idea of a law written only on tablets of stone, that is finished also, although it was never God's plan. He says, now I will give provision so that the law can be written upon the tablets of the heart. So let me review. Does the old covenant have law? Does the new covenant have law? Does the old covenant have blood? Does the new covenant have better blood? Does the old covenant have transgression of the law? Does the new covenant have transgression of the law? So the only two differences between the old and the new covenant are that the new covenant has better blood and the new covenant, the law is written in a better place. But it's the same law. Is that clear to your mind? That it's the same law? It's not a different law? Let me ask you, is sin still the transgression of the law today? Most certainly so. Now, the question is, what attitude did Jesus have for the law? Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and let's notice how Jesus considered the law. Because some people say that Jesus wanted to get rid of the Old Testament law. See, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, that was, that was the Old Covenant. And now we're under grace, the New Covenant. Incidentally, I'd like to ask you a question. Why would you need grace if there is no law? Why do you need grace? Because you've what? Sinned. But what is sin? Transgression of the law. But if you said that God get rid of, got rid of the law, there could be no sin. Because sin is breaking the law. And if there is no sin, why would you need grace? So this idea that Christ did away with the law is really a way of doing away with the need that we have for God's grace. Now, notice what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Let's look at the attitude of Jesus towards the law. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What did he mean when he said, I came to fulfill? Oh, it's very simple. All you have to do is change it around to fill full. In other words, the Old Testament system without Jesus was empty. In itself it had no meaning. 
Am I right? It only had meaning as it pointed towards Jesus. If Jesus didn't come, how much meaning would that system have? None. Because its whole meaning was found in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to do away with the Old Testament uh, law and the prophets. He says, I haven't come to do away with, I've come to fulfill. And then notice what he continues saying. By the way, he's saying this from the mountain, isn't he? He continues saying in verse 18, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? No. One jot or one tittle. The jot is a, kind of a little dot in the Hebrew, the yod. The smallest letter, the yod. And the tittle is a little accent marked in the Greek, like a period. So what Jesus is saying, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one comma or period will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Did Jesus come to do away with the law? No. In fact, I'm going to show you now that the law that Jesus gives from the mountain is even more demanding than the Old Testament law. You say, how's that, Pastor? Well, go with me to chapter 5 and verse 21 and 22. Ye have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. What is murder? It means taking out a gun and shooting someone. Yeah, that too is murder. But Jesus says that murder is deeper than that. You see, murder is not an act primarily, it's a motive which leads to an act. It's something that comes from inside which leads you to do it. By the way, you won't want to miss the sermon tomorrow because we're going to talk about overcoming life's mistakes. It's going to be the second part of what we're dealing with tonight. I'm going to talk to you about how you can have God's law written on your hearts. How you can have a new life, a new heart. Because that what, that's what God wants. And so he says in verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that is fool, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Notice Jesus says that it's not only murder to kill someone, it's murder to hate your brother. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3, where the beloved disciple of Jesus uh, expresses it in a slightly different way and even clearer than what we find there in the text that we just read. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Any part of that that you don't understand? That includes in church. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So according to Jesus, what is murder? Only killing somebody physically? No, it's hating someone. Ooh, now that's a problem, because there you don't have to deal with the act, you have to deal with the heart. Because murder comes from the heart. Notice also Matthew chapter 5, still talking about how Jesus looked at the law. See, he intensified it, he made it all the more demanding. 
He said it is still binding, but now it doesn't only reach to the axe, it reaches to the heart. That's why the law has to be written where? In the heart. See, you shouldn't be afraid of killing somebody because you're afraid, you're afraid you'll end up in jail. If you had love in your heart for your neighbor, there wouldn't need to be any civil laws forbidding murder. Now notice what it says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Jesus from the mountain, see this is the law of Jesus from the mountain. Is Jesus doing away with the law? Oh, he's actually making it more demanding because he's saying it goes to the heart. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her and in her heart. Huh? In his heart. Yes. And hers too. Even though the text doesn't say it. Because it takes two to commit adultery. Now what did Jesus say? He said, listen, forget that adultery is only sleeping with a woman. He says, I'll make the law even more demanding than that. He says, if you look upon a woman, even on the internet, even on X-rated movies, ooh, I'm into meddling now, no matter where it is, if you look at a woman to covet her, you have already committed adultery where? You have already committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus, instead of doing away with the law from the mountain, actually underlines the law, and he says that the law deals more than with acts. It deals with the condition of what? With the condition of your heart. That's why God wants to write his law where? Under the new covenant. In the heart. Because when the law is in the heart, nobody's going to have to tell you. We read in the book of Hebrews, nobody's going to have to tell you, now this is right and this is wrong. Because you will automatically do what's right and, what, and you won't do what's wrong because it comes from where? It comes from your heart. Is it the same law under both covenants though? Yes. Now some Christians say, but pastor, isn't it just enough to love? Yes. As long as you understand what love is. The problem today is love is understood in a sentimental romantic sense. You know, love is the most abused word in the world today. Oh, I love pancakes. I love my car. And then someone says he loves this woman, but really, it's not the woman. It's maybe the external characteristics of the woman. And so love is not a feeling. It's not a sentiment. It's not an emotion. Love is much more profound than that. If you say that all you need is love and you understand what love is, I would say amen. Now let me explain to you what love is. Go with me to... The Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to see that all we need is love. But then we're going to define what love is. John chapter 13 and verse 35. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the test of whether we're disciples of Jesus is if we have what? Love. Now that's kind of a general comment, isn't it? You just love. 
The question is, what is love? Well, let's go to another passage that makes it even a little clearer and defines it a little bit more. Go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36. There's this lawyer that comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, what's the great commandment? And you know what Jesus answers. Notice what it says, starting with verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Incidentally, this is not a new commandment because Deuteronomy 6.4 says this. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. So Jesus isn't saying anything revolutionary. He says, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's nothing revolutionary either because that's in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus knew the scriptures. So he says there's two commandments. There's love for God and there's love for what? And there's love for your neighbor. So now we have a, a clearer, more specific definition of love. Love means loving whom? God and loving your neighbor. That still is kind of a general. What does it mean to love God and to love your neighbor? You see, the Bible specifies even more. And that is in the Ten Commandments. You see, the, the big principle is love. Then God says, okay, love branches off into two. Love for God and love for your fellow man. But then God says, I have Ten Commandments, and that will tell you what it means more specifically, what it is to love God and what it is to love your fellow man. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll find that the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. You shall not have any graven image of me. You shall not take my name in vain. You should rest on my holy day. In other words, the first four commandments define what we'll do if we truly love God. The last six deal with what we will do if we really love our fellow human being. Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. In other words, love is the broad principle. Then that branches off into love for God and love for man. Then the Ten Commandments specify even more. The first four deal with what it means to love God. The last six deal with how to love your fellow man. But then love is defined even more specifically. Go back with, back with me to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 40. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 40. Jesus says, On these two commandments hang, what? All the law and the prophets. By the way, that was the Bible in the days of Jesus. The law is the writings of Moses. The prophets is the rest of the Old Testament. So in other words, if you want a, even a more specific definition of love, you have to go to the whole what? To the whole Bible. And incidentally, I'll challenge you to do this. There's not one single verse in the Bible that does not expound in some way one of the Ten Commandments. For example, the story of David. You know, there, the, the commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill. That's an abstract concept. Until it happens in real life. And you really see why God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not kill. Does the Bible exemplify that commandment and the dire consequences of violating it? 
Yes. See, the Bible gives us stories of people that illustrate these commandments. What it means when you obey them, what it means when you disobey them in practical life. The story of David is an example of that. He commits adultery and he kills. The Bible tells us what the terrible consequences are. Do you know that that story is simply an exposition of the commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery and the commandment that says thou shalt not kill and the commandment that says thou shalt not covet. But it makes it a real life situation. So Jesus says on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So what is love? Is it some uh, nebulous principle? Oh, let's just all get along and hug each other. You know, that's the idea that many Christians have. Let's, let's not fight because of this church, that church, the other church. Let's just all get together, all love each other, and hug each other. That's superficial. The Bible tells us that love is love for God and love for neighbor. It's keeping the fourth command, four commandments, the first ones, with relationship to God, the last six with relationship to man. And on these commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the Bible is an exposition of these commandments. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. After quoting the last six commandments, the Apostle Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you tell me that, that all we need today is love and you define love as keeping God's commandments, we're on the same wavelength. But you see, you can't keep the Ten Commandments, really, unless they are written where? In your heart. Now notice what it says in the book of John. Go with me to John chapter 14 and verse 15. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Here Jesus says to his disciples, a very well-known verse, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. What is love then? It's obedience to God's law. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because the law and tablets of stone impose it upon you, but because the law written in your heart impels you to do it. Notice what Jesus says also in verse 21 of John uh, chapter 14. Verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Who is it that loves Jesus? He who keeps his commandments. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice chapter 15 and verse 10. Repeatedly, Jesus, the lawgiver from the Mount of Beatitudes, has a high regard for the law. But it's the law of the new covenant. It's the same law, but it's the law written where? On the heart. The problem with the Jews is that they had the law written on tablets of stone. And they were always trying to measure up. They were always saying, okay, there's the Ten Commandments now. How am I doing today? When you do it that way, you're sunk. Because you can't do it. Because there's no power inside to help you do it. But when God takes those commandments written on tablets of stone and he writes them in your heart, then nobody has to tell you do this and do that because automatically all of these things will come out of your heart. Now notice what it continues saying. Uh, did I read chapter 15 and verse 10? That's what we're going to read now. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my what? In my love. 
Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His what? In His love. Now let's go to 1 John. The writing of the beloved disciple. I think he knows a lot about Jesus. Don't you think? Because he spent so much time with Jesus. In fact, he laid on Jesus' breast there in the Last Supper. Notice what it says in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. And now notice verse 4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Notice chapter 5 and verses 2 and 3, also in 1 John. 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not what? Burdensome. You know, when you love your wife, doing things for your wife is not burdensome. For example, when the anniversary is coming around the corner, you say, oh no, not again. Well, but I better, I better get her a present and a card or else I'll hear about it the rest of the year. Is that any real motivation for buying an anniversary card and giving an anniversary present? No, you're keeping the law because the law requires it. But when you love your wife, it will be a pleasure to buy her a card and take her out to eat and buy her a present too. Because it comes from inside. Because it's love springing from the heart. It's not imposed. Now I need to share this with you. The Ten Commandments are a relational document. In other words, the Ten Commandments reveal what perfect relationships are like. You know, the Ten Commandments would be useless unless there were people to have relationships. I mean, for example, thou shalt not kill. Kill who? <laughs> Don't the Ten Commandments define a relationship? Yes. Thou shalt not commit adultery. How can God say thou shalt not commit adultery if there's no one to commit adultery with? In other words, the Ten Commandments point out a perfect relationship between God and man and between man and man, man and woman. The Ten Commandments are a relational document. And what happens when we break one of the Ten Commandments? You have separation. You have pain among people. You see, the result of breaking the commandments is separation. Now some people say that, that sin is separation from God. The Bible never says that sin is separation from God. Sin is breaking the law and when you break the law you're separated from God. Sin is transgression of the law. You disobey the law of God and as a result what happens with your relationship? Your relationship is broken. So what does God want to do? First of all he wants you to claim the blood to forgive that sin. And then he wants to do more. He wants to take his law and he wants to write the law where? In the heart. Do you know that the devil hates God's law? Do you know why the devil hates God's law? Because the law shows you that you need a savior. It points you to Jesus. And the devil hates God's grace because it shows that Jesus paid your penalty. So the devil hates law and grace. 
But he makes Christians think, you don't have to keep the law. The law, that was for Moses. It's not for Christians. The only thing that changes between the Old and the New Testament is that in the New Covenant, the law is written upon the tablets of the heart. But the law is the same. Is adultery any less adultery today? Is killing any less killing? Absolutely not. Sin is against people. Sin is against God. Sin breaks a relationship. When you break the law, you break a relationship. That's the reason when the prodigal went home, he didn't say, Oh, Father, I've broken the Ten Commandments. What did he say? I have sinned against heaven and against what? And against you. Let me tell you, folks, you can sin, and the tablets of stone will never feel it. You can break one of the ten, you can break the Ten Commandments, all of them, as they're written on tablets of stone. And it's not going to bother those Ten Commandments on tablets of stone one bit. But you see, when you break the commandments written on tablets of stone, you're really breaking your relationship with God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? When we say, for example, that we sin against the law, we're really sinning against God because God is the personification of the law. See, the Ten Commandments are the law in written form. God, in His person, is the personification of the Ten Commandments. And so when we break the Ten Commandments, we're sinning against whom? Against God, whose character is a reflection of the Ten Commandments. Am I making sense? Are you following me? When we say that the demands of the law need to be satisfied, what are we saying? That the demands of God need to be satisfied. When we say that the justice of the law must be satisfied, we're really saying that the justice of whom must be satisfied? The justice of God might be satisfied. One of the big problems that we have in the world today is that Christians have trivialized the importance of the Ten Commandment law of God. You know, Jesus twice in his ministry told people who were sinners whom he had forgiven. He says, go and sin no more. John 5, 14 and John 8, verse 11, he said, go and sin no more. And of course, you all know that beautiful verse, Matthew 1, 121 actually. It says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people in their sins. Ha, thank you very much. I tried to trick you, but you're still awake out there. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people, what? From their sins. You see, God not only wants to forgive us for the sins that we commit, God wants to give us power to overcome sin. And that power comes when the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and the Holy Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts. And tomorrow we'll talk a little bit more about this. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and let's read verse 12. I want you to catch something really significant here. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, speaking about the last days, it says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. What is it that leads love to grow cold? Lawlessness. You know, for a while I really struggled with this verse. Because it could have been said the other way around. Because the love of because of the lack of love of people, lawlessness will abound. But it says that because of lawlessness, by the way, this is the same word that is used in 1 John 3, 4, where it says, sin is transgression of the law. 
So it could be translated here, because of transgression of the law, love will what? Will grow cold. Why does it say because you break the law, love grows cold? Because love is keeping the law. Are you with me? According to Jesus. This is love, Jesus says, that we keep his commandments. So when law, lawlessness abounds, when transgression of the law abounds, the result is a lack of what? A lack of love. Someone once said to me, now is your church law-oriented or is your church grace-oriented? You heard that question before? I said, that's a very good question, but the answer is that it's neither. My church is Bible-oriented. And my church teaches that we're all transgressors of God's law and that we need His grace. And when we receive His grace, His forgiveness, God wants to even do more. He wants to take that law and He wants to write it in our hearts. So don't talk to me about law or grace. Talk to me about law and grace. Don't talk to me about mercy or justice. Talk to me about justice and mercy. You see, Jesus was judged for my transgressions of the law so He could have mercy. He satisfied justice so that He could have mercy. So He's just and merciful. No such thing as saying that he's all mercy and no justice. The fact is that he took my penalty so that he could pour out his mercy upon me. I want to go to one last passage tonight. Matthew chapter 7. This is a solemn passage, folks. Matthew chapter 7. And I'd like to read, starting with verse 21. This is speaking about Christians in the last days. That's the sad part. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Not saying, Lord, Lord, but doing the Father's will. Now notice verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? Are these Christians? Are they yes or no? Why would they be using the name of Jesus if they were Christians? Did they apparently have spiritual gifts? Were they doing signs and wonders? Are all signs and wonders of God? Uh-uh. And what is Jesus going to say? Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Because some people say, well, when they did these signs, they were with the Lord, and then afterwards they left the Lord. But here Jesus says, I never knew you. Why not? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you know that that word lawlessness is the identical word in 1 John 3, 4? He who sins transgresses the law, for sin is transgression of the law. So in other words, you could translate it here. Depart from me, you who transgress the law. Christians who had signs and wonders and miracles. But what did they do? They insisted on trampling upon the law of God. The cross not, not only offers forgiveness, folks. The cross also offers power to overcome sin. And how is that? Listen, when you contemplate the cross and you see Jesus hanging on that cross, bleeding, and crying out in anguish, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I ask Jesus, I say, why is this happening to you? 
And Jesus says, sin is transgression of the law. It's because you have broken the law. The wages of sin is death. When I see Jesus on that cross, I'm going to say, Lord, you mean to say my sins did that to you? Oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. Forgive me for putting you on that cross. Do you think Jesus will forgive you? Yes, but do you know what? When you see what sin did to Jesus, you won't want anything more to do with sin either. Because from the cross will flow power. If we had our eyes on Jesus, on his cross, and we saw how terrible sin was, that sin put him there and made him suffer in anguish, we would not want anything more to do with sin. The reason why we don't overcome sin is because we have our eyes everywhere except on the cross of Jesus, where there is forgiveness and where there is power to receive a new heart and a new life where God's law is written in the heart. How many of you would like me to pray that the Lord will write his law upon your heart? Forgive all of your sins. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've studied that Jesus had high respect for your holy law. In fact, he defined love as keeping the law from the heart. Lord, you've seen the hands that have been lifted up this evening. There are many people that are struggling with habits in their lives, with sins and thoughts and feelings. I ask, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you will come and you will bring conviction of sin, that you will lead them to the cross of Jesus. And that in the cross of Jesus they might find forgiveness for all of those sins. But as they keep their eyes on Jesus, Lord, I ask that you will help them not only to be forgiven, but also to have power to overcome sin in the life. Lord, we can't agree with that bumper sticker that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Because, Lord, you want us to be forgiven, and through the power of Jesus, you want us to march on to perfection. Not so that we can tell the world how perfect we are, but so that we can reveal your greatness and your power. I ask that you will come close to each soul who is struggling with sin, that you will satisfy the deepest desires of their hearts. I pray in Jesus' precious name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.